Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms again, Psalm 114, Psalm 114. <clears throat> Psalm 114. We're not told who wrote it, um, but it's probably written in the time of the Babylonian exile, and I'll explain why that is later. But uh, this psalm is about the exodus from Egypt. It says, when Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, and Israel his dominion. The sea saw it and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams. The little hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back? O mountains, that you skipped like rams? O little hills like lambs? Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of waters. I wonder how many of you uh, will remember 2010 when in Chile uh, a group of 33 miners were trapped underground in a, in a 121-year-old mine at San Jose uh, for about 18 or 19 days, at least it was, uh, underground. And uh, it basically what had happened was they'd been working in a particular mine and some explosion went off and it cut off their exit and uh, great chunks of rock fell down and blocked them in. And these men who were down there, this, this team of 33, they didn't know that anyone up above ground knew what had happened to them. And it was a long time before anybody realized that these men hadn't come out. They'd been down there on a long shift, they'd taken food uh, and supplies with them, and they weren't expected up for a long time. So no help came initially at first. Uh, but the men themselves, while they were down underground, they found a little uh, safety um, cavern that they had built, or not at this time, but at a previous time. Uh, they have safety caverns which they can retreat into, uh, which had been dug away in the mine. They found this little uh, safety cavern about the size of a bedsit. That's how it's described. And 33 of them <laughs> were squashed in the heat underground in this little bedsit, and it was very intense. They did find a, an escape tunnel, and uh, this had been properly dug away, and they started to take it only to find it stopped, and the management hadn't finished making the escape tunnel, so they had to retreat back and come back 
to this place. Well, eventually, the people above ground realized that they hadn't come up and uh, they realized then that these people needed rescuing. And uh, a great rescue operation was undertaken and a big camp was set up here where the relatives of these 33 miners uh, all came and camped out until they came up. The, the president of Chile came himself and uh, they called this place Camp Hope because the people above ground were praying for rescue and praying that they would be able to find these men and when they were drilling down to try and rescue them they were drilling to the right place where they were to try and find them and uh, inside the the cave where the men were there was one man who became the leader Uh, the man who first one of the first men out uh, a man who eventually came out at the end whose name was Jose Hen Riguez. I think that's how you pronounce it. Let Eduardo correct me later on. Uh, but uh, Jose, Pastor uh, Jose, became the unofficial pastor of this group. Although there were 33 of them down there, many of them were Christians, some were nominal Christians, and some were atheists. But he rallied the men for prayer, and he said, The only thing that's going to get us out of this is God. And he said it was amazing. All of the men, all 33, even the atheists, came to a daily prayer meeting. And uh, they kept praying and praying and cried out to God. He said, we had one desperate prayer cry and one purpose together. We were all praying, Lord, open up a door of escape. There is no other way unless you do it. Well, amazingly, on day 18, a drill came through. And uh, it made contact with them, a small drill. And they were able to put a piece of paper on the end of the drill and send it back up uh, that said 33 men. That's how many are down here. And they were so thrilled up on, up, uh, 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 up on ground that they had made contact that they, started able, they were able then to start sending down water because these men had been rationed. They'd fasted. Every man had to fast for three days before he could eat again to make their food and water last think of that (laughs) that's terrible isn't it and uh, in that heat to survive as well they sent them down um, uh, game consoles and things like this everything to keep them distracted but the thing that they wanted more than anything you know every man got a bible they sent down a bible and a cup a mug with the name of the miner on it to every man and every man had a bible and a mug and uh, pastor jose as he became known he used that Uh, as an opportunity to teach the men about God. He'd already been teaching them from memory. One of the stories he taught them was about Jonah in the whale. Jonah way down at the bottom of the ocean, down in the prayer in Jonah 2, down at the the base of the mountains. Uh, But God uh, made the, the fish spew him out on dry ground. And he said, God is able to do this for us. Well, he said when they got the Bibles, then they were able to have proper Bible studies. And his own words were, the Bible study and preaching began to change lives as it always does, said Jose. And uh, some of them became Christians down in that mine. An amazing thing. And when they were coming up, they were given t-shirts. They'd asked for t-shirts to wear as they came up. And everyone came up in a t-shirt that said, thank you, God. 
And most of them came up, and the first thing they did was they got on their knees and praised the Lord. It was an incredible thing. And uh, Josie says, afterwards, when I visited the men in hospital, they all said, thank God that he did this. All of the men experienced a real relationship with God down there. And down there was the place where the Lord met with them. And in fact, the men said, there is a 34th man down here with us. And they called the Lord the 34th. The 34th one, because they said his presence was more and more real the longer they were down there. On one occasion, uh, uh, Jose said that he, uh, oh sorry, one of the miners who came up and said, we were with the Lord down there and with the devil, but the Lord won. (laughs) And uh, he said the Lord was very real to them. Strangely enough, before the drill came through, one strange incident let them know the Lord was with them. And because down in the earth that deep, it's intensely hot. And yet, on one occasion, when the men were flagging, a cool breeze came through. Where did it come from? Underground, they don't know. But they said, a cool breeze came through and just revived us. And uh, it was evidence of the Lord with them. But Josie said this when he came to this country to give testimony to the Lord. He said, God is always beside us. We can't see him. He said, but you can feel his presence in your heart. We believe in a power that is not seen, cannot be touched, but can be felt in the heart, and that is our God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was talking about the real presence of God that a believer knows when he comes to saving faith in the Lord, even in the most difficult and trying circumstances. And the presence of God is something which is one of the fundamental truths of Christianity. And it's taught here in this passage. You'll notice verse 7 especially uses the word twice. It says, tremble O earth at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the God of Jacob. And uh, that's really the theme of this psalm, the presence of God at the time of the Exodus. You see, this psalm is one of seven psalms that belong in a group together. In fact, it's also a part of a bigger group called the Egyptian Hallel, which is the uh, prayers they use at the Passover. And uh, this is one of the psalms that the Lord Jesus would have read on the night he had the uh, Passover meal with his disciples before going to the cross. And uh, this is uh, one of those psalms. But it's also in a group of seven. And these psalms are hallelujah psalms. They start at Psalm 111 and go through to Psalm 117. And it's an interesting design. It's what we call a menorah design, like the, the menorah in the temple. The first three begin with the word hallelujah in Hebrew, or praise the Lord, as it is in our English versions. The three that follow this one end with the phrase hallelujah, or praise the Lord. And this one in the middle doesn't have it at all. 
It's a design either side, but it's one of the Hallelujah Psalms. It's interesting to note, actually, the psalm before this, Psalm 113, ends with praise the Lord. It's almost like it's lending a, <laughs> a hallelujah to Psalm 114. But it's uh, the middle one in this design. And it's about the presence of the Lord in uh, the Exodus. And we as Christians believe in the presence of God. We have a doctrine of the presence of God. That the Lord is everywhere. I was talking to Dave uh, on the way in. And Dave Brown, I said, I said we're in the Psalms. And he said his favourite Psalms, 139. Well, Psalm 139, David says, uh, he says, where shall I go from your presence? If I go across the sea to the furthest part, you're there. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go down to hell, you're there. God is everywhere present. He is omnipresent. It's one of the great doctrines of the Bible. Now this doesn't mean that God's presence is like the beam of light from a lighthouse. Uh, A a beam of light from a lighthouse, if you see a classic picture of that, uh, is coming stretching out from its central point and its beam manages to reach out to the corners. It's not like God is in heaven and his presence manages to reach out to the furthest part. God is equally present in every place. He is as much here tonight as he is in heaven. Think about that. He is equally present everywhere. He's not less present in one place than in another. And his presence is a fundamental Christian doctrine. Matthew 28 verse 20, the Lord Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, lo, I am with you always. And he could say that because of the omnipresence of our God. It's one of the things that makes the God of the Bible different to the gods of false religions. Canon W.G.H. Holmes, who was a missionary in India, tells how he saw Hindu worshippers tapping on trees, going up to trees and knocking on trees and saying, are you there? Are you there? (laughs) Looking for their gods in the trees. Are you here? Are you there? But the Lord is everywhere for us and we know that. A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, says this, The doctrine of the divine omnipresence personalizes man's relation to the universe in which he finds himself. This great central truth gives meaning to all other truths and imparts supreme value to all of his little life. God is present near him, next to him. And this God sees him and knows him through and through. At this point, faith begins. And while it may go on to include a thousand other wonderful truths, these all refer back to the truth that God is and God is here. So precious to know this wonderful truth of the presence of God. And the children of Israel experienced it especially at the time of the Exodus. And uh, I want us to look at this tonight for our encouragement and see the three stages and the three uh, doctrines that are, or teachings that are brought out from this psalm about the presence of God at the Exodus. First of all, we see that God his presence enters his people in verses 1 and 2. Secondly, we see it excites his creation in verses 3 to 6. And it evokes reverence, draws out reverence from us in verses 7 to 8. 
I pray that we'll feel God's presence here tonight in a real and a precious way. First of all then, God's presence enters his people. And this is what we see in verse 1. Let's go back there a minute. The psalmist says, When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. This tells us when the presence of God came to Israel in a localised form. The presence, omnipresence of God was with them always, but there became a time when the localised presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God, was known and experienced in Israel's camp. And uh, it it is when they came out of Egypt, the the Exodus event. And uh, it's a a wonderful testimony, verse 1, that the house of Jacob came out from a people of a strange language. And by the way, that's one of the things that always marks out what it is for Israel to be in a foreign land, is that they speak a strange language, a different tongues. One of the fascinating things about the Lord is how the Lord has preserved Israel from being assimilated by the other nations. Satan has often tried to assimilate them into other nations and tried to destroy them, but he hasn't been able to. And the Hebrew people kept their own language and the language of the Egyptians was foreign to them uh, to the end. But when God brought them out of Egypt, out of uh, the, the people of a strange language, that was when he came to live with them in a present form. Judah became his sanctuary, says verse 2, and Israel his dominion. And what this is talking about is the fact that the Lord came into the tabernacle which Moses had been commanded to build for the Lord as designed in heaven and given to Moses on Mount Sinai. You see here above the tabernacle the uh, the pillar of fire that came down and the localized glory of God, the Shekinah glory came into the tabernacle and God literally came and lived in his people, came and lived among his people. In fact, if you look at where the tabernacle was in the camp of Israel, it was right in the middle of the camp. The rest of the camp was laid out around it. And I've said this lots of times before, you can see the divisions of the tribes, as you get those from the early chapters of Numbers, laid out, and it's in the shape of a cross, which is significant I believe and in the middle of that cross there is the blood the altar and the presence of God but that's when the Lord entered his people and what we're told here is Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion his sanctuary is the place of his or where he was worshipped and Israel was his dominion means that it was the place where he ruled as king. The word dominion is a word that is related to a king's rule. And this is an amazing thing because the Lord is reminding them that even before they had a temple... ...in, in, the, in the days of Solomon and up to the time of the exile... ...the Lord dwelt in his people even before then. 
This is something that Stephen brings out in Acts chapter 7 in his great sermon, in his defense uh, before he's stoned. And he talks about how uh, the Lord was with his people, like with, with Abraham and with the children of Israel in the wilderness, even before the temple had been built. So don't think that this temple is the only thing. <laughs> That's his point. And uh, the Israel doesn't need a temple. And this was the point that uh, the psalmist wanted the people in exile to remember. Just because you're in exile, don't think God isn't with you. He's with you now, too. And he says he's with Judah and Israel. That was the north and the south kingdoms. You remember when the kingdoms divided. That's the clue that this is a, an exile psalm. But the Lord entered his people and his presence was seen and known among them. And this is a, a tremendous reality that we as Christians know as well. In the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 that Christ in us is the hope of glory. And when we become Christians, the Lord comes and enters his people. His presence is known inside us. Let me give you a testimony from a Christian to help explain this. Uh, this man is uh, a Zimbabwean cricketer by the name of Henry Alonga. Uh, Robert and Ellen Gay knew Henry, and uh, they, they lent me a CD that he'd made. But uh, in his testimony, he talks about the fact that he, and by the way, he had to flee Zimbabwe because of Mugabe. He stood out against Mugabe's regime. But he talked about how he became a Christian. And he said, my image of God was something remote up there in heaven and not too bothered about what was happening here on earth. I was scared of him because I was scared about going to hell. But I didn't think I could have a personal relationship with God. He was too remote. And that changed when he received a Bible and started attending a Christian youth camp where he became a Christian. And he said, all my ideas about God were challenged. I began to understand that Jesus had restored us by his life, death and resurrection. God was not someone remote up there in heaven. He was present in this world. I decided to turn my life over to him and invite him into my life and let him be my guide. It was the best decision I have ever made. And this is the wonderful truth. Paul talks about it in the book of Ephesians chapter 3 as well. He says about how he prays for the Ephesians that they may have strength to ask Christ into their hearts. That Christ may live in their hearts by faith in that great prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. And uh, the Lord wants to live and enter his people and dwell within them. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And I wonder tonight whether I'm speaking to somebody here who's always come to church but has never known the Lord in them. Doesn't know the reality of having the living God so close he is actually inside them, actually dwells inside them. Through the power of his Holy Spirit, indwelling is the term used in the New Testament. Well, you need to ask the Lord to come in. You need to ask the Lord to come in. There's a famous story about this painting that you may have seen. This is a, a picture uh, by this gentleman here at the bottom, Holman Hunt, a uh, famous artist. 
And he painted a picture of Christ standing at the door and knocking. It's based on the text in Revelation chapter 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him. And uh, on one occasion, when he was painting this picture, and it was near the end, somebody said to him, Holman, you've done a wonderful job, but you've just made one mistake. And he said, what's the mistake? He said, you've put no door handle. You've put no door handle. He said, oh, that's not a mistake. He said, the door has to be open from the inside. And this is what the Lord wants us to do. He wants us to open our hearts and say, Lord, come in. Be my Lord and Saviour. I put my trust in you. He's standing at the door knocking. Some say that applies to a church. But if it applies to a church, it's a church full of non-Christians. Because if Christ is outside that church, it's an unsaved church. Each one of us needs to receive Christ as Saviour and Lord. And then his presence will enter us and we also will be his people. Notice the time this happened for Israel was when they were redeemed. And when they were redeemed... Then, when they came out of the world, out of Egypt, then the Lord, they became the sanctuary of the Lord. Warren Wiersbe says about it in Ephesians chapter 2. In the Old Testament, God made a temple for his people. In the New Testament, God makes his people his temple and he comes in them. So ask the Lord into your heart and life today if you've not done so, trusting in his death on the cross for your sins. Second thing we see here is, is... is God's presence excites creation. Because in verses 3 to 6, we have an account of how creation reacted to the presence of God as God was with the camp of Israel as they were on their journey and they came out of Egypt and went on their journey to the promised land. And verses 3 to 6 talks about creation. Verse 3 says, The sea saw it and fled, Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, little hills like lambs. And what ails you, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back. O mountains, that you skipped like rams. O little hills like lambs. What they're saying is the presence of God in God's people and creation itself is reacting to that. Now the psalm is beautifully laid out. In verses 3 and 4 you have statements and then in verses 5 and 6 you have questions, questions put to creation. That's the simple uh, structure of those uh, four verses there. But you'll notice it begins in verse 3 with the sea and the Jordan River. The sea saw it and fled, Jordan turned back. Now, these were the two great miracles among water that were at the beginning and the end of Israel's journey. Forty years separated these two great miracles, and yet both of them were miracles where water reacted to the presence of God. You're going to have a third one later on, by the way, in verse 8, with the, with the rock that gives the water. In the first one, the Red Sea opened. At the presence and the power of God and the people were able to flee through it to the other side. And in the other one, and this is where Christians sometimes get it wrong, they say that the Jordan parted. The Jordan didn't part. The Jordan stopped. (laughs) It wasn't a sea. It stopped and it banked up, back upstream. 
And the Hebrew here is the Jordan, the descender, which is the name of the Jordan, the descending. It turned back and stopped flowing down. And that enabled the children of Israel to come across into Canaan on dry land. But both were miracles uh, of God's in creation. And creation reacting to the presence of God. The first one was when they came out of Egypt. The second was when they came into Canaan. And it was a miracle of God opening the waters. But then he turns to the mountains in verse 4. And he says the mountains skip like rams and the little hills like lambs. Now commentators find this harder to explain. Some think this refers to Mount Sinai when God came down to give the law on Mount Sinai and there was a great earthquake and a trembling and the the sky went dark. To me that doesn't sound like the the hills skipping like little lambs. (laughs) That sounds like a great mighty earthquake uh, and something uh, dark and and heavy and powerful uh, in that sense. It may do but uh, I think the better explanation is to see this as the hills of Canaan uh, when the children of Israel were coming into the land. And it's interesting that some of the miracles that happened at this place uh, in Canaan seem to have some significance connected to earthquakes with them. Uh, when God made the walls of Jericho fall down flat, that was a supernatural miracle. But it's as if God shook the mountains and made them fall. When uh, Israel conquered the enemy's camps on the hills, it was as if uh, he shook them. But for the mountains and the hills, it was delight and joy because this is the people who were made for this land. And so where's the seas fleeing back, the mountains and the hills, they're leaping for joy. And you have these two reactions, intimidation by the water, standing back and joy and the mountains and the hills. And then the questions in verses 5 and 6 are to put it to creation. What made you do that? What ails you, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back? O mountains, that you skipped like rams? O little hills, like lambs? And the answer is very simply, it was the presence of God. The presence of God among his people made creation get excited and react. Now, why am I excited about this? I'm excited about this. Because this is a foretaste of what's going to happen when the Lord comes back. Romans chapter 8 tells us that creation is groaning as it's waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. And he's talking about the things that we're seeing in the newspaper this year. Things like that great earthquake in Turkey and Syria. What is that? That's creation groaning. Because the time is coming near and the presence of God is drawing near and the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. He said in Matthew 24 that there'd be earthquakes in the last days uh, as one of the signs of his coming. And it's like creation knows its creator is coming among them. It's getting excited. It's beginning to react. You know, uh, one of the the fascinating films, I don't know if you saw that film, The Monument Men, uh, a few years back. It was all about the stolen loot that the Nazis took, mostly from Jewish homes. 
Uh, and of course, this was collateral for paying for the war, and uh, it was uh, security uh, as well for them. They have the power, the financial power, and money uh, and, and painting and artwork doesn't go out of value like uh, other things can do. And so it was a good thing that they stole, and they stole tons and tons and tons of this stuff. Well, of course, a lot of it, most of it, uh, was uh, captured, recaptured by the Allies. But you know what? Hardly any of it has gone back to its people. And now there's a database that has been made with all these artworks. Now we have computers and Jewish families and families all over Europe and all over the world where this was taken are able to look and show and claim back the artwork that was once theirs. It's almost like that stuff is, needs to be restored. <laughs> you know, It needs to go back to where it belongs. And creation is in that same situation. It's crying out for God to come and make it new. And what a wonderful work it'll be when the Lord Jesus comes back and uh, does that. One of the things I'm looking forward to is the transformation of creation at his second coming. But then thirdly and finally in this passage, we see the presence of God evokes reverence. And this is what verse 7 and 8 draws out. It says, tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of waters. And here the psalmist is saying, tremble. The Hebrew word for tremble in verse 7 is the word travail. It's the woman for a wo- uh, word for a, a woman going into child labor, childbearing. And uh, it's saying, get serious <laughs> and, and tremble before the mighty God who has the power to do these things. And it reminds us of one amazing miracle, especially the water that came from the rock, which I highlighted earlier uh, from the Exodus, Exodus 17, where Moses struck the rock. Interestingly, um, in the alternative Exodus archaeology, rather than the old archaeology, which had no archaeology, which was the embarrassing thing about it. There wasn't these things. But the the newly found archaeology of the Exodus uh, in looking at a different location for the camp of Israel has a split rock in its camp, which has evidence of water having borne it down and flown down. That may well be the rock that Moses struck and it split and waters flowed out of it. We don't know, but it's a a very reasonable guess. But think of the miracle and the power of this. God turned a rock into a pool of waters. That is a supernatural miracle. That is phenomenal. The power of God to make such a transformation. And transformative miracles are one of the categories of miracles we find in the Bible. Adam, the first man, was transformed from the dust of the earth into a living being by the power of God. Think of that. Eve was taken from the rib of Adam and turned into a new type of person, a woman. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses threw his rod on the ground and the dead rod became a living snake. You know, we read these Bible stories all the time and we go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
This is amazing stuff. Transformation on, on a supernatural level. Exodus chapter 4, the waters of the Nile became blood. In Exodus chapter 8, the dust of Egypt turned to lice. In John chapter 2, the water turned into wine. And the Lord did this transformative miracle here when he turned the rock into a pool of water. And he says specifically the flint of which that whole region actually has flint among the livestone. The flint into a fountain of waters. Think about that. The hardest rock turned into something you can drink. Power of God. And he says, tremble at that power. Fear the Lord. Respect him. And uh, reverence him. Now, fear of the Lord doesn't mean that we're, we're living terrified of God. But it means we have reverence. Adrian Rogers defined reverence as love on its knees. And I, I love that description. Those who love the Lord most will be those who fear the Lord most. And they will have greatest respect of who he is. He is a great and mighty God. And I'm wondering tonight how much you fear the Lord. If you think of his power, is God somebody you realise? You know, the Bible says it is with God we have to do. Do you think about that? Amos says, prepare to meet your God. One day you're going to meet the God whose presence can turn the rock into a pool of water. You're going to meet him. That's something to take seriously, isn't it? Who is he and the great power he has? You're not going to be able to escape with silly excuses or hiding from him on that day. You're going to be face to face with the one who has power over all creation. I read a fascinating little story about a man in this country who got caught by a, speed, uh, by a policeman speeding in this country. He got fed up with living in this country and he went to live in New Zealand. You know when he was in New Zealand he got caught for speeding again. But the really amazing thing was the policeman who caught him speeding in New Zealand was the same policeman who had caught him in England. And Andy Filton, the policeman, had also emigrated to New Zealand as well. It was almost like you can't escape the long arm of the law. But you know what? That's like God as well, isn't it? You know, his presence is everywhere. You can't escape his presence. He knows what you've done. He was there when you did it. Therefore, there's no escaping, no running away, no lying. The best thing you can do is not run away from him, but run to him and ask him to have mercy on you. He, he's a saviour God. And what I love about this psalm is, as I look down it, I can see a picture here of salvation as it can be applied to us as well. You see, this all started with when Israel came out of Egypt. And when we come out of the world and the Lord comes into our hearts and we become his sanctuary, it's like, like the rivers of the, of the Jordan and the Red Sea opened. The Lord opens our hearts and he comes in. The mountains skip and our hearts skip with joy. And we know the joy made like lambs as we experience the joy of the Lord. And this heart of rock, you know, Ezekiel said, I'll make 
God will make your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. That's the other transformative miracle. He'll, he'll break our hearts out of its hardness and melt it before him. We'll weep tears and the heart of rock will weep for its sins and weep at the mercy of God and say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Our mighty God is present here tonight. He is present to save. He's present with those who are at home on Zoom. He's present with those who are listening online right now. So call on him in the name of the Lord Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and you'll know his presence come within and stay with you forever. Amen.